Good morning, church. Welcome to Emmaus Road. I'm Pastor Mike, and we are in our study in the book of Jude. This is week two. We're in verses five and six and seven, so you're going to want to turn there, and uh, we'll be reading that passage in just a minute. But I want you to stop and think about the choices and decisions that you make every day. Think about the thought process that you go through just to arrive at your choices and decisions. I mean, some of our choices uh, hit us really quickly. Decisions have to be made in an instant, and we get very little time to actually make up our minds and deliberate. So a choice or a decision for us can seem very innocent, even harmless on the surface. But over time, if you're making careless decisions, you can begin to set your life on a course that is actually deadly. And so everyday Christians are challenged to think critically, to think biblically about the decisions that we make, the words that we use, the way that we live. And and living in this present world, that line between right and wrong can can get kind of fuzzy. And sometimes it, it seems to just disappear altogether. And this is why we need discernment. Because evil doesn't always present itself as evil. Satan is the enemy of our souls, and Scripture says he is cunning and he is very subtle. And so Paul would write uh, to a church that was greatly gifted in Corinth, but extremely gullible. And so in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13 to 15, Paul says this to to that church. He says, "Such, such men as these are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So right and wrong are not always obvious to us. And without discernment, we won't be able to recognize the truth about a person or about a situation. So true Christian discernment protects us, guards us from being deceived. It keeps us free from the consequences of bondage to sin. When we engage biblical discernment, we're less likely to become ensnared in Satan's traps. And this is why God graciously gives us Letters like this one from Jude in the Word. False teachers don't wear name badges that say false teacher on them. They're sly and shifty and really hard to spot sometimes if you don't know what you're looking for. So Jude is is used by God to give us one of, I think, the most clear descriptions in the Bible about false teachers. And and when you read it and then then you look up from the text at at the world around you, you begin to see more clearly the spiritual landscape of America and uh, our our version of Christianity here in America. It it can feel really overwhelming that so many false prophets are successfully deceiving so many people. But this is precisely the reason for verses 5 and 6 and 7 as we come to the text of Jude today. God is reminding us that no one escapes His judgment. There was a situation in Texas, uh, uh, one Diana Valencia was arrested on drug charges back in September of 2008, and there was really very little doubt as to her guilt. Anybody caught in possession of two kilos of cocaine is going to have a really hard time explaining that away, 
as some innocent mistake. But she came up with this very novel attempt to get off. She and her sister decided they would bribe the judge who would be hearing their case to make sure that they went free. And the plan would have worked except that the FBI was involved behind the scenes. The agents were suspicious of Judge Manuel Barraza as they cut a deal with Valencia's sister to record their meetings with the judge. She taped a total of five conversations in which they agreed on a price for getting her sister off free. So Barraza was arrested and convicted. He lost his judicial position because of his attempts to circumvent justice for the sake of personal gain. And I think a lot of people think that they can enjoy sin and find some means, some way of escaping the consequences. I remember growing up in the South and hearing an old preacher say they sow their wild oats and then they pray for crop failure. <laughs> but no matter what devices we come up with, God is sure and certain to judge us. We cannot bargain with Him. We cannot bribe Him. His hatred of sin parallels His perfect holiness. And He does not turn away from it. He will judge it. He will deal with it. God sees every sin. Nothing escapes His sight. He will judge every sin, Scripture says, even down to the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. God is not mocked. Every rebellion against God has failed and will fail. And there are only two options for the rebellious heart, repentance or retribution. So let's look at our text this morning. Only three verses in the book of Jude here, verses 5 and 6 and 7. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now those are just three short verses, but there is a ton of history and context to be unpacked here. So let's jump in. Verse 5, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So remember that this is about God's discipline and punishment on false teachers. Jude is employing some historical instances that would be very familiar to his readers. And so the first one involves the exodus out of Egypt and, and uh, Israel journeying to the promised land. And we see that it was Jesus that saved the Israelites again and again. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And Jesus is all over the Old Testament if you know where to look and how to, how to see him there. Theologians talk about what we call a Christophany or a Theophany. Um, those are just Old Testament appearances of God or of Jesus. And usually in those, in those passages, uh, Jesus is referred to as the angel of the Lord. And that's confusing for some people because um, we, we talk about angel. The word angel actually means messenger. 
but we've we kind of turned the word angel into a classification of beings and that's where the confusion comes in this particular angel of the lord is not a created being and speaks for god as god in the first person he would say i am or i have now come and that's how you know that this is jesus not and not an angel like gabriel or michael so Jude is giving us this example, this first example, the Exodus wanderings of Israel. Now, the Exodus itself was punitive in nature. It, it, it was a punishment. It could have only taken them two weeks to journey from the land of Egypt into the promised land. But it took them 40 years because of their stubbornness and disobedience and hardness of heart. And there are multiple episodes all along the way of God's judgment and discipline on his people. There were fiery serpents. There's a, there's a fire from the presence of God at one point. The, the ground opens up and swallows whole families that were in rebellion against Moses and, and so many more things. Each one a discipline designed to bring brokenness and repentance to hardened hearts. Because this is about God's discipline. This is about his punishment on false teachers. And so Jude says... By way of reminder, though you once fully knew it, right? Jesus destroyed those among Israel who did not believe during the Exodus. Just, just think for a moment about uh, them stopping at the base of Mount Sinai and Moses and Aaron going up onto the mountain to receive the law of God and what happened there at the base of the mountain. And Israel began to worship and, and, uh, and fornicate and, and have basically a giant orgy. And, and uh, Moses came down and 3,000 people were put to death that day. That is the continual uh, char characterization of this wilderness wandering. Their rebellion and hard-heartedness. Deuteronomy 8 says this in verse 2 through 5. The Lord is speaking. He says, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger, and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Your clothing did not wear out on you. Your feet did not swell these 40 years. So know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. He disciplines you. This is about the discipline of the Lord. So we go into verse 6 here in Jude. He says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. <laughs> oh boy. Here we go. Uh, this, is a, this is a passage that a lot of pastors don't want to deal with. Uh, this is his example. Jude's example number two is the angels from Genesis 4 resulting in the Nephilim. Now, these angelic beings violated their proper dwelling. Some translations you might be reading would speak of their proper abode or boundaries that were set in place by God. Clearly, not all angels are given permission to interact directly with human beings. If they were, we would, we would have a lot more instances of that happening. But only certain angels on direct assignment from God may do this. 
And, and by the way, I, I do believe in guardian angels. I believe they're angels assigned to people. Um, but for some of you, uh, the first introduction you had to this concept that I'm unpacking right now, the angels and the Nephilim, is, uh, maybe, maybe you stumbled into the theater to see Darren Aronofsky's movie Noah a few years back. And for that, let me just say I'm sorry that you had to sit through that movie. It was terrible. Um, but the, <laughs> the reality is the church in America tends to steer clear of passages like this one precisely because it sounds really crazy to our enlightened 21st century ears. And understanding this is going to require a little more delving into other passages to support what I'm going to unpack here, because quite honestly, it's not widely taught on. Um, it is widely avoided or brushed aside because of what I believe the plain reading of the text says. It really reads like something out of a bad sci-fi channel movie. Um, so, so let me just read you Genesis 6, 1 through 4. If you've never read this passage before, welcome to the Nephilim. Uh, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any that they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. Then a feeling were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown." Now, some, some def definitions here. Daughters of man clearly means human women. There's no argument about that. There's no textual critic or um, author of uh, biblical helps, <laughs> any, any Bible dictionary that's going to deny that daughters of men here clearly means human women. That's not, that's not up for debate. But the sons of God, that, that phrase in Hebrew is benai Elohim, and that's where a lot of people get hung up. And so there are two views on what is this, what is this thing that's a result of this union, these Nephilim? What, what is that? What are they? So two, two views on this, predominantly two views. There, there are a couple of other uh, lesser known, lesser held views, but the, the two main ones are this. The first one is the Sethite view. It has to do with Seth, one of the, one of the later children of Adam and Eve. And the view is this, that the godly sons of Seth mingled with the ungodly daughters of Cain. And so somebody will put forth that, that response to this quandary, and it seems to give us reason to just breathe deeply and sigh, a, a deep sigh of relief, having dodged the bullet of embracing what would otherwise seem a bizarre passage about angels and humans. And really, the only major problem I have with the Sethite view is that it just doesn't fit the text. That's the only problem I have. Uh, it doesn't really jive with the other scriptures. So, so you've got the Sethite view, and then you've got the fallen angel view. And, and this is that the Benai Elohim, the sons of God, um, there was sexual union happening here that resulted in something abnormal. Now, Benai Elohim is a phrase uh, that is that is only exclusively used in Scripture to ever speak about directly created beings, not indirectly created beings. You and I are indirect creations of God in so much as God didn't form you and I out of the dust of the earth as He did Adam and Eve. We were born biologically. He is our Creator, but they are direct creations. We are indirect creations, okay? And so the Benai Elohim are always directly created beings in the text. 
not like humanity after Adam. So it's clear from the text that the resulting union produced something abnormal, not something we'd expect from godly people marrying ungodly people. The women in this passage didn't have, seem to have much say in the matter, and we know that Nephilim means fallen ones. Three centuries before Jesus even came on the scene, when the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek and into what we call the Septuagint, uh, they used uh, gigantes, which means earthborn, but also has the connotation of giants. It's very closely related to the Greek word geneges, which is used in Greek mythology for the Titans. Um, and you'll remember that these creatures that emerged from the inbreeding of the Greek gods with human beings in Greek mythology. So it's from these two words, interestingly, that we get our English words, genes and genetics. I find that interesting. So the Genesis text, uh, chapter 6, verse 4 says, and also after that, which indicates these strange events were not confined to the pre-flood era. So there, there are a number of tribes like the Rephraim that were descendants of the giants. We know that in Genesis 14, Genesis 15, Deuteronomy 2, Deuteronomy 22. Uh, we know that king, the kingdom of Og, the king of Bashan, was a kingdom of giants. Uh, Deuteronomy 3, Deuteronomy uh, 13, Joshua 12, Joshua 13. Later we find that Arba and his seven sons were called the Anakim, and they were giants, Joshua 14, Joshua 15, Joshua 21. And of course, Goliath and his four brothers, who were Anakim also, um, the 12 spies, when they came back from their trip into the Promised Land, reported giants in the land, Nephilim in the land, Numbers 13, this is not an obscure reality. It's all over the Old Testament. Um, and, and, then, and then you've got 2 Peter. You've got Peter testifying to something very similar here. Let me just share with you Peter's uh, weighing in on this. 2 Peter 2, 1 to 10. Peter says, False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And then he says this, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them into the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept into the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ash, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as a righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormented in his soul over their lawless deeds, which he saw and heard then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Catch those last two things, especially people who indulge in defiling passion, sexual immorality, aberrant sexual behavior, and also who despise authority. Those two things go hand in hand. They go hand in hand. So this language in 2 Peter 2 goes in a very parallel fashion to Jude's letter. But, but here, here's what you have. You've got three texts in the Bible. And that's important because God's Word says that a matter is established by the account of two or three witnesses. And so you've got 
um, you've got the Genesis account, you've got 2 Peter 2, and you have Jude 5, 6, and 7, all reporting the same incident, that these angels are kept bound in chains in a place of darkness until the great day of judgment because of some kind of sexual transgression that happened. Verse 7. (laughs) Just as Sodom and Gomorrah, you see that lead-in? Linking what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah to what was just described. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality. I think the text is pretty clear. And pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Well, let's go back to Genesis 19. Let me give you the lowdown here. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, Genesis 19.1. And Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw those angels, he rose up and met them and bowed with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house, spend the night and wash your feet. You may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, and so they did turn aside with him and enter his house. And he made them a feast, and he baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, and all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said, Where are the men that came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. That's the Bible's way of speaking of sex. We want to know them. It's a carnal knowledge. We want to know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance and shut the door after him. And he said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you that you may do to them as you please. Now, I'm not sure what's going on in Lot's mind. Not his greatest moment. But he says, only do nothing to these men, for they've come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn here. He's become our judge. And now we're going to deal worse with you than we will with them. And they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot back into the house with them and shut the door. And they were struck with blindness, the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. You skip on down to verse 23 here in the text in Genesis 19. It says, The sun had risen on the earth by the time Lot came to Zoar. And then the Lord rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and everything that grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. So that's our third example here from Jude, Sodom and Gomorrah. And we see the common theme here being willful rebellion against God, against His Word, against His ways. We see clear examples of sexual sin and perversion in all three instances, but especially the last two. And and it it just astounds me that there are liberal theologians uh, and and commentators who want to posit that it was a lack of hospitality there in Sodom and Gomorrah that caused God to smite the cities, not sexual perversion. Can I just tell you, that I would definitely say uh, attempting to rape angels qualifies as being inhospitable. Wouldn't you say that qualifies? It's crazy to me. So let's see what we can take away from these three verses. And let's make some personal application. What do we take away? Well, I, I love what John Wesley's mom said to him about sin. 
a young man growing up. This is what she said. If you would judge the lawfulness or the unlawfulness of pleasure, take this simple rule. Whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, and takes off the relish of spiritual things, that to you is sin. Let me read you her definition again. And just listen to this. Let, let this sink into your soul. If you would judge the lawfulness or unlawfulness of pleasure, then take this simple rule. Whatever weakens your reason, impairs your ability to think, whatever impairs the tenderness of your conscience, that part of you that knows right from wrong, whatever obscures your sense of God, it gets in the way of your relationship with Him and your awareness of Him, and anything that would take off the relish of spiritual things, the the, 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 your love and your passion for the things of God, that to you is sin. That's sin. And the most clear reality of this section of Jude's letter is that God punishes sin. He punishes wickedness and disobedience and rebellion. And, and He does this directly and He does this indirectly. Or maybe a better way to say that would be that he gives consequences that are primary and secondary. His direct punishment and the natural consequence of sin. In other words, there are two facets of his judgment that are grafted into some of the consequences of our choices uh, such that the deepening and ongoing pattern of sinful behavior becomes a form of judgment unto itself. Scripture speaks of this reality in terms of reaping what we have sown. And that just, it, it becomes like a snowball rolling down a hill. It just gains mass and momentum. It becomes harder and harder to stop that thing. Romans 1, 26 and 27, Paul says, For this reason God gave them up to their dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up their natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, so, so STDs, other communicable diseases would fit that description in this example, as would the emotional problems associated with what we now call alternative lifestyles. These are the natural consequences of God's clear command, which is being violated. So there's a common element in all three examples that Jude uses. Sexual sin, immorality, and perversion. That's a common element here. And if there's anything that's universal cross-culturally in our world, it is sexual immorality. It's in every culture, all the way back in history to the beginning. It's everywhere. Remember that this warning is in the context of false teachers infiltrating the church so, so add this information to your grid that, that you used to filter through. And then this week, take a look around at the cultural landscape of our country and our culture. And then go beyond the culture and take a, take a very uh, acute look at churches, pastors, teachers, authors, and Christian artists. You might just see some things that you've never seen before. We need to be discerning in these days. Sin comes when we take a perfectly natural desire, longing, or ambition and try desperately to fulfill it without God. Not only is it sin, it is a perverse distortion of the image of the Creator in us. 
all these good things and all our security are rightly found only and completely in Him. That's Augustine. In fact, let me just read that to you again. Sin comes when we take a perfectly natural desire or longing or ambition and we try desperately to fulfill it without God. Not only is it sin, it is a perverse distortion of the image of the Creator in us. All these good things and all our security are rightly found only and completely in Him. So we must never forget God is not mocked. Every rebellion against God has failed and will fail. And there are only two options for the rebellious heart. There's repentance and there's retribution. And there is no third option. And this is the warning of Jude to us. And it is much needed in our day. Father, I pray that you would take your word and you would apply it to the heart of every hearer, every listener to this sermon. You would awaken your people to pursue you with all of our hearts and to embrace discernment in these days. Our enemy is sly and cunning and wicked, and we need to see with your eyes. Would you give us that in Jesus' name? Amen.